right. Well, this evening we're going to be continuing in Luke 19, and I just want to give a little bit of context before we read uh, our portion tonight, because it jumps right into it. So if, if you recall, and I'll ask you to stand in a moment for us to read the text, but let me just give you the background. Remember that Jesus went to Zacchaeus' house. Remember that? He went to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector, and then there he told the parable of the Minas, and, and, and now we see that we see a shift happen in the ministry really, of Jesus. So let's stand, and uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 28 of Luke 19, often referred to as the triumphal entry. Luke 19, starting in verse 28. And when he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, and it came to pass when he drew near Bethpage and Bethany at the mountain of Olivet, he said to his two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you will say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he has said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing this colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus. And they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then, as he was now drawing near the descent of Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. O Holy Spirit of God, would you now illuminate this word for us and that of our hearts that we may see it and know it and understand it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, at this point... In the book of Luke, as I just mentioned, there's a significant transition in the ministry of Jesus. Really the last 15 chapters, which has taken us most of a year, has heard, we've heard about the ministry, the life of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus. We've heard about the teachings of Jesus, the parables, right? But now we see a transition happen. It's often referred to as the triumphal entry of Jesus, and it's recorded in every gospel. And when something's recorded in every gospel, it tells you, first of all, that it's very significant. And secondly, a lot of times we can get a very full picture because you have all of those Holy Spirit inspired authors giving slightly different details. And we're going to see that here tonight. But that's really the overarching takeaway or lesson. Uh, for, for us tonight from this text, this is a very significant event, symbolic and physically, uh, the entrance of Christ to where he would be crowned king. And it's so significant, as Jesus ends this portion, saying that all creation, even the stones, which we even think of as dead, <laughs> but even the stones are not just aware that this happened, 
but they would even need to proclaim the majesty of the king. So Luke, guided by the Holy Spirit, has, has relayed all of this, all he wanted to, you could think, uh, all of the life of Jesus, and now transition to really the last week, we could think, on earth of Jesus' life, the week of, which we call the week of the Passion, uh, which now goes through Luke 23, and then the resurrection and ascension in Luke 24, and then we'll be done with the book of Luke. So, upon considering really this significant event in the, lo- the life of our Lord, we first need to understand a couple things. One is, we're going to look at the kingship and the kingdom of Christ, the kingship and the kingdom of Christ. And secondly, we want to ensure our thinking is right considering Christ's sovereign reign and rule not only over us, his redeemed, but over all of creation. So let's jump right into the text in verse 28 here. First of all, notice that Jesus is on his way to where? Where is he on his way to? Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem, and this is where, now, no one there knew it at the time, but he knew he was going to be rejected, wasn't he? He's going to suffer. He's going to die. He's going to be resurrected there too. But he's not there yet. He's not there yet. And the text tells us he's near Bethany, which is about two miles outside of Jerusalem. Okay, so he's kind of on his way in that area. And we see that in preparation to arrive just outside Jerusalem, he gives his disciples, some of his followers, this interesting instruction, which is to go get a a colt. And uh, instructions on what they're supposed to say to the, the what they're supposed to say to the owners because you can't just go steal an animal. But we notice that Jesus then, of course, enters Jerusalem, as it were, on this colt, the foal of a donkey. And of course, you probably know Zechariah nine nine. It's almost a perfect fulfillment of what happened here, and even the rejoicing of the crowd, which is real interesting because. It's not that the crowd perhaps expected to do this uh, as he was just on his way to Jerusalem, but of course this all unfolded in Zechariah 9.9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Have any of you ever ridden on a donkey? No one here has ridden on a donkey. Wow. Well, then we just can't relate to this, can we? <laughs> I guess we need to ride on a donkey. <laughs> now, this animal that Jesus rode in, was this just any animal? No. This was very specifically chosen. And it really helps us understand the message that Christ is trying to relay to the people. Right? The, 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 a new king who is entering in to take over the reign of his kingdom, how would he come in in that entry, in that triumph? Would he ride a donkey? I think not. In fact, the king would want to show how strong and powerful he is. Ride, in fact, the strongest, biggest, most beautiful horse he could find. Right? Horses, why? Horses display power and strength, right? And, and horses are animals of war and battle and overcoming and triumph. And of course, that's what a king would want 
to display. But not just a horse, but perhaps a whole processional, perhaps chariots, perhaps uh, gold-laden soldiers to show the might, to show the power. It's symbolic of not just a new man, but the power and strength behind a ruling and reigning king. But as we know, this is not how Jesus entered, is it? Not at all, because he would be a very different type of king for his people. Remember the prophecy of Zechariah, just and lowly, just and lowly. So this is exactly what we could expect. This Jesus would come as a king, not to make war, but to make peace. As the Prince of Peace, bringing the ultimate and final reconciliation between God and man. So Christ rides on, not a war horse, but a very lowly, peaceful animal. A meek animal, the donkey. Now note, the disciples are instructed to get a colt that has never been ridden on. Never been ridden on. No one has ever sat on this thing. Which, like all of us, we've never ridden a donkey. So, this donkey, though, this colt, has been reserved for God's sacred use. The first person to ride on this would be Jesus, the king. And, of course, this is a principle we see throughout Scripture. Christ was the coming king, but he was also the coming sacrifice of God's people, right? And we see just an example of that in Numbers 19. Speak to the children of Israel that they may bring you a red heifer without blemish in which there is no defect and on which, which a yoke has never come. It's this idea that there is something reserved, untouched, unused for the king. And note that this, this, this colt had not been untouched and really not used for any other purpose. And of course, there's a lot of other parables here in Jesus' life, isn't there? Mary, as a virgin, was biblically speaking untouched. She was set apart, reserved to bear forth Christ. When Christ was crucified, his body was laid in a tomb that had never been used. And so everything about the triumphal entry of Christ is carefully planned out by God, preordained before time. Zechariah had written this 500 years before Christ. And so now the disciples go and get the colt. And is it, is it trouble? Is it, is it difficult? No, it's not at all. They find everything exactly as Jesus described it. They obtained the colt, and it says they set their own clothes on it right away, right? making kind of a makeshift saddle. Right? Once again, a symbol of humility and the lowliness of Christ. This animal is not arrayed with anything of wealth or earthly treasure, but just with probably the old used clothes of some of his followers. Now, before we go on from this point, I I just want to give us one practical application. Notice that Jesus has many disciples out there. I mean, surely there were the ones around him right now, right? As they're going to Jerusalem, he had a big crowd around him of followers. But you know that Jesus had followers throughout the whole region in this time. And many who stood ready to serve him, right? 
These were more than just supporters of Jesus, but faithful followers, right? The disciples that he sent, all they had to say was, the Lord has need of it. And what did they say? Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. If, if Jesus needs it, you take it. Just you can have it. They were so supportive, right? And we, we have that in our Christian circles, right? You can imagine a, a, a brother or sister comes to you and says, you know, could you, could you help me with this? Oh, absolutely. I love you, brother, right? There's a, there's a connection. There's a bond. You see that already begotten by Christ amongst his disciples then and then here today. We have that connection here amongst one another. One of the things that that's, I really enjoy, sometimes I'll, maybe I'll go on a trip somewhere or I'll interact with someone, maybe, maybe in town that I've never met before, someone that I barely know, but I'll find out they're a believer. You know, and there's a sense that they're a true believer, a genuine, they, they, they've been born again, they tr- they're trusting in Christ. I love the common bond that it is immediately formed, the trust that is giving. There's sign of this sense that comes within you like, I want to help this person. I, I feel that this is my brother or sister in Christ. I, I don't know what, I can't explain it, but there is just some kind of connection. And that's, that's, that's a beautiful thing. And you see it here. You see it right here. They went and got the colt. And they were probably supporters somehow or disciples of Christ and said, absolutely, take the thing. It's for Jesus. No questions asked, just take it. And so we have that common bond once another. I think the giving of the colt was just showing another aspect of Christ's kingship as well, right? These, these believers were working together to advance the kingdom of Christ. And this is, of course, exactly what we all need to do together. Now, it's, as we know in the church, it's so easy for us to get upset at one another. <laughs> That's easy. But what's harder to do is suffer long, as our brother mentioned this morning, right? And to, and to then come together, unified together, to join the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. It's hard to do when we're not unified, though, isn't it? One heart, one mind, one voice, championing the cause of our king. So the disciples bring the colt to Jesus, and everyone is excited. In fact, you you read more clothes are placed on the back uh, of of the colt of the donkey, and 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 now they spread their clothes where? On the road. They're making this as grand as they can with the little resources that they have, right? They, don't, they haven't been able to do much. But we also see in the Gospel of Matthew that others, it says, cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And we're told in the book of John that these are palm fronds or palm branches. Um, ever, anyone ever cut down or held a, a palm branch? Yeah, I mean, they're pretty big, weighty things, aren't they? I mean, they're pretty significant things. Michelle, you have too. That's great. They're bigger than you. <laughs> um, but this is, of course, where we... What, what, what term do we get from this that we call a particular Sunday? Palm Sunday, right. And this is why. Because they would lay the palm branches down for Christ to walk on. Now, with, on the donkey. Now, why did they do this? This seems like an interesting thing to do. Well... The use of palm branches was used for celebration in victory in, for, for, for throughout this time, throughout, throughout the region, and particularly in David's time as king. And so it was, it was very well connected. It was a celebratory act 
that was connected to the coming Messiah, to the entrance of the king. We might think of it today as maybe something like rolling out the red carpet. We don't really lay things down for people to walk across today. But it's for the entrance of a great king and leader. So this act really pointed to Jesus as king and as as high priest. Now, what I find very interesting is that after this, in the early church, uh, in the resurrection, after the resurrection of Jesus, uh, disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, used the palm branch to symbolize victory, the victory over the enemies of our soul. And so it was really a symbol then, the palm branch for a while, to speak to the triumph of Christ. And so I thought, you know, maybe we should do that today. You know, we don't have any palm trees around here. That's a big challenge for us. But if we did, maybe we lived in Florida or something, you know, we could, a palm branch would just be, it was a sign of victory. It was a sign of triumph of Christ, of our King. And, uh, and there's a lot more history there, but uh, I thought that, that's, uh, that's encouraging to know. And it's just a reminder of these sort of altars of remembrance that God gives us that we can use to, to proclaim his victory. Now, I'm sure you're all aware, we know that we see this as a huge celebration takes place. The people are very excited. It's kind of like a parade at this point, we could think of it as. With Jesus moving in, if the people had balloons and confetti, they would be throwing it. They were shouting. They, had, they didn't have much resources, but they were doing everything they could. Now, notice, as we've, as we've walked through Luke, we've seen this is a big crowd. In fact, the term used... Uh, here uh, in Luke is multitude, which is a very large, it's bigger than even the word crowd. We can think this is a large amount of people. Um, because what's happened at this point is it's not just the people who had been following Jesus, you know, along the way, but now he's getting really to the outskirts of the town of Jerusalem. And so people that are in the town have now come out and joined those that have followed him for this this triumphal entry. So there's just a ton of people following him now. So lots of excitement, praising God with a loud voice. Not only did they uh, shout praises to God, but they, they were probably talking to one another. And you know what that's like when people are shouting and praising, they're talking to one another. I mean, they can get very, it's a very loud event and amen. Now the, the gospels share slightly different aspects of what the multitude said, Right? I mean, here in Luke, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, this is from Psalm 118, which we sang and we read uh, earlier. Blessed is the coming one. Blessed is the Messiah who comes in the name of the Lord. Remember, we we sang that. Pastor Shuiso read it too. So, he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this this is it. This is the Messiah who comes in the name of the Lord. And the the multitude adds in, that's not in Psalm 118, the king who comes in the name of the Lord, which is very appropriate because they're, what are they doing? They're really proclaiming the restoration as they see it as the kingdom of David, right? And so they also mention peace and glory. Now, we're most familiar with what some of the other gospels say. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, right? Now, what does Hosanna mean? It's an interesting word. We don't probably use that every day. Anybody know? What does Hosanna mean? 
Well, if probably a most literal translation would be, pray, save us. Save us, God. Or save us kind of with a sense of adoration and joy and praise and, and really expectation. Now, the question is, why didn't Luke use that word? Why, in his, why didn't Luke use the word Hosanna, as the others did? And some have thought, well, it's because his Gentile readers might not have understood that phrase, and so he just wanted to bring a more sort of direct translation that they would understand of what was happening. But the people are effectively saying, Lord, save us, deliver us. Hosanna in the highest. And the, the, again, the people are very excited and, um, but, but what's interesting is we know, kind of knowing what happens after this, their, their, their excitement is not fully accurate, is it? They, they were, they thought this was it. Jesus was coming in. He was going to take over and be king forever. And it was pretty much a done deal. But of course, that's not what happens the rest of this week, is it? The, 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 the multitude was excited because they viewed this as kind of a final takeover by Jesus, almost more of a political move, right? That Jesus would give the people deliverance from the yoke of Rome and, and Israel would be reestablished, as it were, as a great independent nation. That's what they're expecting of Jesus, really to be this political king, Maybe a spiritual king too, but a political king that would overthrow the Roman government, free the people from the chains of tyranny, and it would just be heaven on earth. Jesus would reign. And so their minds, at least some of them, were likely filled with earthly ideas about the coming king and what he could do for them that day in Jerusalem. And this is because there's a mixed crowd. And this is really goes back to what we've seen throughout Luke. You have this, the multitude is comprised of at least three different types of people that we've talked about. We've talked about, there's certainly true followers of Jesus there. True disciples, true followers. And then of course, we have the Pharisees always seem to be there who are mocking Jesus or saying something. They're certainly against Jesus. And then we sort of have everybody else that's, Maybe just curious, like, who is this guy? We've, we've heard about him. There seems, seems to have a bunch of followers. Um, he's done miracles, supposedly. And so there's this, this multitude is a variety of people. You've you got a mix of people. And it says, but what's interesting is it says the whole multitude shouted these things. And again, remember, because of the mix, maybe those people that weren't exactly believing in Jesus, they were still happy maybe they were going to have a better Roman king take over. I mean, that could be something to be happy about, right? Everybody's happy when a, good, a better governor comes to town um, for, the, for, for most. But it's, it's not clear, perhaps for some, why they were excited, right? The people were excited a king was coming, although it was not clear what was going to happen. We knew that, uh, they knew that perhaps he was going to reign. Perhaps he was going to take down the Roman Empire. Perhaps he was going to come and have victory. But of course, we know there was going to be much different events later that week. His death and resurrection, of course, was not the only victory, but just the beginning of his kingship. Just to reference back um, earlier in Luke 19, you remember when Jesus was at Zacchaeus' house, he told the parable. The meanest. And he said, 
It says, he told it because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. That's why he told that parable. Actually, the the text tells us that. And now you can see how he was preparing them. He said, no, the kingdom of God may not come immediately. Now the triumphal entry happens. So he prepared them. So surely there were some disciples and followers that understood this. And, but there was still the cheering, the smiling, the joy. But what was, where was Jesus' heart in all of this? Because being God, he knew what was going to happen later this week, didn't he? It's, it's very likely Jesus was riding the donkey with a heavy heart. Because he knew what was coming. And it's not surprising that we're going to see later in Luke that Pastor Swanson will teach on next week. We see the picture of a weeping king who, who in the midst of a shouting multitude, Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem for they do not know what will come, what will expect. Perhaps because Jesus was not the kind of Messiah they expected This many, perhaps in this very multitude, although cheering today, would be crying out and shouting just a few days later, crucify him, crucify him. And this is why following the triumphal entry again, we see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, as we'll hear next week. So even though the crowds were shouting peace, their excitement didn't really correspond to the true spiritual perception of, of Jesus's messianic mission. The multitudes, in some regard, failed to grasp the reconciliation with God. That was their deepest need. I mean, a political change, a kind of a temporary governmental change could be good, but that was not their deepest need. And of course, that's not Jesus's task or central task. And so yet there's a this, we have this very significant event in Jesus' life, this really transition to the next point of his ministry, yet with irony. Because these people are celebrating, but it's likely that they, some, at least in the multitude, will turn on him and say crucify him because he did not bring about the political change they wanted. He did not turn out to be the king that they expected. And that, that's just the heart of man, right? We, we, we're, we're looking for what's in it for us, right? Right here, right now, today. I want, I want satisfaction today. Now, surely, there were some genuine followers and disciples of Jesus there who were proclaiming the fact that indeed their Messiah had come. They didn't know exactly what to expect or even what kind of rule and reign he would have in the coming week, but they were thankful, for the, as it says, for the works that they had seen him do. Now, in response to all of this, of course, we have the Pharisees there in verse 39. And let's see what they say. Some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd and said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And and it's interesting. Why are they so upset at this celebration? Why do you think the Pharisees are, are not happy? They're indignant against this whole thing, which isn't really surprising. They were, they've been against Jesus the entire time. But remember one thing that we're told about the Pharisees. Who do they like to please? They like to please man. They're man pleasers, right? And, and they, had an, 
the, the Pharisees were able to maintain kind of a balanced peace with the Romans to a degree. And they didn't want to upset that. And here you have this huge multitude basically coming into Jerusalem saying, a new king is coming. I think the Pharisees were thinking, uh, stop, quiet. I mean, the Romans are going to hear you and get upset. Uh, what are you doing? And so they were just like, rebuke your disciples. You, they can't do this, Jesus. Don't, they, don't you know what this is going to cause? So they were concerned that all this support would, for Jesus would fuel some kind of revolutionary movement uh, that might bring persecution, even against them by the Romans. But of course, what does Jesus say in verse 40? He answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Hmm. Amen. And that's very instructive to us, isn't it? And I, and I really just want to end on two applications from that statement. Um, first of all, the stones crying out. No one here has even ridden a donkey. Has anyone ever seen a stone cry out? No, <laughs> we haven't seen this. But Jesus said, if his followers did not cry out and praise God, for this significant event that was happening. The king was coming, right? He who comes in the name of the Lord. This, this is happening. Even the stones, all creation, are going to cry out. And I think, first of all, we see that Jesus is really referencing his preeminence over all creation. And we see this in Colossians 1, speaking of Christ. It says, He is the image of the invisible Son, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So all of creation is under Christ and all of creation is for Jesus Christ. Do you see that? It's not just under the authority. It's for Christ. It's created for him and for his purposes, for his kingdom. That is why we, ha that is all under the creation. That's, it's the purpose of the creation, you could say, is to speak the glories of God, to proclaim the majesty of the king. And so we have, we, we brothers and sisters have to think this way. We really do as Christians. Every tree in your yard, every tree in your yard exalts Jesus Christ. You know that? Every fish, every deer, every squirrel, every mouse, every star, every planet cries out to proclaim the majesty of God. Now, not the, not the fake false gods of man or Buddhism or Hinduism or atheism or Islam or natural. They're not praising those fake gods. They're not. Only Jesus Christ and his kingdom. It, it, and it's really amazing. And, you know, and we see the amazing work of God in his creation, don't we? It, it's so phenomenal. Um, so many examples. Um, you know, we could talk about the stars that we can see. It's just like a tiny amount of the stars out there. Even with a telescope, it's just a tiny amount of the stars. 
Um, we, in our yard, sometimes we get a deer antler. Anybody ever held a, a deer antler, you know, which fall, and maybe you find them in your yard? I mean, even, you know how, so I'm, okay, I was a mammologist, so I have to give my perspective. But these things are phenomenal. Just this little part on the top of their head that has accelerated bone growth. And these things grow these huge racks of bone in a matter of months. It's phenomenal. And then, yet in the same very place on the top of their head, they have kind of an ignited by a change in daylight, they have ignited basically in the same place that had all that accelerated growth, an osteoporosis kind of effect that, that, that cuts off that bone growth so much that the antler falls off in the, in the winter, doesn't it? Amazing, amazing work of our God. And of course we could go on, but this is, this is proclaiming the glory of God. This is shouting the goodness of God. All of creation, right? And this, this comes partially from Habakkuk 2. The, the, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the timbers will answer it. And of course we sang, trees of the field will clap their hands from Isaiah 55. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing. And, Re, and Revelation 5, every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and all that are in them said blessing and honor and glory and power to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever forever and ever. Hmm. Every creature, every starfish, every seahorse, I love those things. Giving praise to God. Well, let me just uh, bring us our second application. And that's the kingship of Christ. Do we rightly understand the kingship and kingdom of Jesus Christ? Do we recognize this sovereignty, this providence over all things? And that this coming kingdom, coming, as as the Lord said in, in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, it's coming. It's not just it's coming, it's here. And it's coming. It has come. The kingdom of God. Now the world may stand opposed to it, but it's wrong, isn't it? It's wrong. And we need to align our thinking to the truth, to the, to the word of God, that his kingdom come, and we need to exalt in that kingdom and the kingship of Christ. Do we live with Jesus as our king? First of all, just of us. Is Jesus the king of your life? Or is there another king out there? Is there, no, is there another, another idol out there? There's something else that rules us, that, that, that we follow. Or is it the kingship of Christ in our life? And so we must live and work and speak and run our homes and do our school, run businesses, make decisions with the kingdom of mind, kingdom of Christ in mind, the kingship of Christ in all things, that, that he reigns and that he's over all these things. So as we consider this, this really significant event, the triumphal entry, entry, we want to remember Christ's dominion overall, that he is the Lord of our lives and our hearts and all things. And as this king came 2,000 years ago, walked in on a donkey in the, in the triumphal entry, representing his, the come Messiah, he who had come in the name of the Lord, we now 
stand and live and have been called and redeemed to live that out. The kingdom of God. Participants in this great work of God as his children. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the kingship of Jesus Christ. We thank you for his glory, his dominion over all. That he indeed, the firstborn over all creation and all things are over. He is over everything, visible, invisible, thrones and principalities and powers were all created through him and for him. Oh God, we thank you for this. We thank you for the amazing work of Jesus Christ and now coming, continue to ruling and reign, not just in our hearts, but over the entire universe. Oh God, help us now as we step forward in faith to walk and live out in the kingship of Jesus Christ, our King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.